how can educators practice having brave conversations to positively affect change? I'm so excited to share with you today the conversation I had with Talking Together for Change. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. I'd never met the three founders of Talking Together for Change before this interview. And can I just say that it felt like I was just part of their friendship the moment we began talking. I think this is such a sign of all of their caring, compassionate, and inclusive ways of existing. Aparna Singhal, Lindsay Kaur, and Risa Walden are the trifecta that founded Talking Together for Change. And let me tell you, the work that these human beings are doing is so important and needed in education right now. You might have heard of affinity groups, but if not, allow me to give you a little primer. Affinity groups are intentional, facilitated conversations with people who share an identity. The goal is to help process what it means to live with and work against discrimination. Affinity groups can be formed on the basis of many things, such as race, class, sexual orientation, gender identity, religion, though Talking Together for Change focuses on two main groups, BIPOC educators and white accountability groups. I loved this conversation. These leaders drop a lot of wisdom and knowledge, but there's also so much laughter in this episode, and I think this is an important thing to highlight. While we're having brave conversations, there's also so much joy in this kind of work. Please give a warm welcome to the show, Aparna, Lindsay, and Risa. I am so excited to get to talk to everyone today, talking together for change. I feel like I am in the room where it happens in a way. We're all together and I get to talk to you about incredible things. Let's start by having you introduce yourselves. So I have people say who they are, where they live and what they do. I believe Lindsay, you're gonna go first. Sure, I'd love to. My name is Lindsay Kaur. I am an educator. I taught for many years at the middle and high school level, um, but I'm taking a bit of a leave right now and um, trying to focus more on our business, among other things. So it's kind of nice. Um, and I'm in Guelph on Treaty 3 territory. Dish with one spoon, two were wampum are some of the treaties that govern that area. Um, and it's the territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabek, and Attawandra people. And we all, coincidentally, are on that territory. <laughs> Aparna, I pass it over to you. Thanks, Lindsay. My name is Aparna Singhal, and I've been in the education sector for over 20 years, uh, like Lindsay, teaching in the middle and uh, high school levels, math and science predominantly, and really excited to be here uh, living in Oakville, Ontario. Over to you, Risa. Uh, my name is Risa Walden and I live in Cambridge, Ontario, where I currently teach at the college level at Conestoga College. I've taught in my career as an English teacher um, at the high school level, at the university level, at the college level, so I've really spanned the breadth of um, the educational <laughs> institutions in, in uh, throughout Canada, but I also um, uh, I'm writing a book right now, so that's what I'm doing as my sort of primary occupation, as well as working together in running our business, talking together for change. I'm so excited. I have a million offshoot questions that I'd love to ask you, but I want to get into talking together for change. So tell us what it is. Where did the idea come from? How did you know that this needed to exist in the educational landscape? Um, well, I'll, I'll start us off by just talking about the fact that Risa, Lindsay, and I have known each other for a number of years. 
And over these years, and well before we even knew each other, we've been doing diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, social justice, anti-oppression work in various capacities, both formally and informally. And over those years, we've had so many deep and meaningful conversations. And we found that the training and the workshops and all that, while they were, they, they're so impactful for our own learning, it was the, the conversations, the discussions, the questions that were prompting ourselves to unpack and reflect on the learning that's been really valuable. And truthfully, we've been talking about starting something for a number of years and our, and our partners and our families have really encouraged us to say, you keep talking about needing these spaces yourselves as educators to unpack, to learn, to reflect. So why aren't you creating that, that sense of community with other educators I, beyond just the three of you or even other educators that are close friends of ours. So over the past year, we've all participated in webinars and seminars like many other educators have been, one being four big questions that we really got engaged in and did some deep conversations. After each webinar, we, we planned a conversation and it was focused on what have we learned? What are we unpacking? What are we reflecting? And it really challenged our thinking and we knew that those conversations are critical for change. So then how do we create that space for other people is really what, what started to fuel this idea that we need to get going. And then hearing from other professionals, educational professionals that are also saying the same thing. I'm reading, I'm learning, I'm listening to this, I'm attending this. And then what do I do with all of that? How, where do I go with all of that? And then I'll take it a step further to why affinity spaces are important. As a South Asian educator, I know I need this space with other Black, Indigenous, and people of color, uh, educational professionals, so that I can feel affirmed, I can feel nurtured, I can feel validated, and I can speak from the eyes perspective without having to explain what that means and have other people understand. And when working in predominantly white institutions, it's really hard to find those spaces. And I've been creating them informally on my own wondering what are, what are other people doing and how are they getting that? And then similarly, I wanna feel comfortable in my own identity. I wanna feel pride in that. And then I wanna be held accountable for my own learning and my own journey. And then a step further as to like talking to Risa and Lindsay is like, I have a lot of friends who identify as white who are wanting to have those conversations with me. And while truthfully, I'm really excited to have those conversations often, I still feel that burden. Right? It's still about me having to explain or teach or share an experience that for me then has an, has an emotional impact. So in talking with Lindsay and Risa about their experiences in white affinity spaces and the need for white educators to have that space to do their own reflecting and learning and thinking and challenging one another without burdening Black, Indigenous and people of color educators that was really what what started our our idea to get going for talking together for change really well put together clearly you have been thinking about this for a long time i think that it's hard because many schools will try to have something like an affinity group but sometimes there's just not the numbers there of the people like we know that our schools there's a lot of white women in our school systems and for there to actually be a meaningful affinity group i think that it's such a great idea that you're casting a wider net to say we need to have these spaces let's collect people from other schools from other 
walks of life so that we can actually have these kinds of meaningful conversations. Well, and if I could add something there, I think also being in this time with COVID was also somewhat fortuitous in the sense that more and more people got used to the idea of meeting together online. And so when we initially thought about coming together to do, you know, whatever kind of work it was in the area of social justice that we wanted to bring together, we would have been limited by our geographies. And so from a Canadian perspective of thinking across the country, it's a really interesting opportunity that virtually now we can bring together educators from lots of different sectors from lots of different spaces and places within Canada to be sharing in these conversations and so that was another aspect that we loved that was just kind of came about because of the unique time that we're in and people's increasing comfort in meeting in these online digital spaces. Were you designing Talking Together for Change pre-pandemic? Like was this kind of comfort with the Zoomosphere just happenstance or was it already kind of in the works and that everyone just became more comfortable with this? Where, when did you start planning this? Well, we'd been talking about it honestly for years and like almost 10 to be honest with you, but hadn't, <laughs> but we were all working full time and it just, there was no way that it just didn't ever get off the ground. And so really it was the pandemic last summer when we were all taking webinars and things, but realized we needed to connect in another way to examine what we were learning more deeply. And suddenly it kind of dawned on us with this new Zoomosphere, as you call it, (laughs) that we could do it in a different way, that it opened up more opportunities. Right now, from what I understand, you have two affinity group offerings. I kind of get the sense from your materials on the website that you would like to open that up to more possibilities. You have intentionally moved away from calling it a white affinity space and you call it a white accountability group. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me about that intentional branding. I want to know more about that. Maybe I should speak to this. <laughs> I've um, I have a lot to say. Uh, <laughs> You've written, written well about I've it on the website. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I wrote a blog about this, and it was you know a, a lot of thinking goes into when you're doing work in these areas to the language you use. That language shifts. There's a lot of debate around you know um, what language do we use to describe ourselves, to describe others, to talk about these issues, and that's always changing, and that's really exciting and. There is a, you know, when we're talking about affinity spaces, there's a long history of, of thinking about affinity spaces and using that kind of language. But when it came to, and, and we've experienced this personally as well, when it comes to talking about white affinity spaces in particular, and there are a variety of reasons, but people seem to get a little bit uncomfortable about talking about, you know, white affinity space what's that space for what, what what does it mean to gather together as white people in a in a space that is predominantly like exclusively white to have a conversation of any kind right and so i think there is a fear um because of the context of white supremacy you know of of having this sort of exclusionary white space. But when you think about how that space functions within the context of social justice and anti-racism in particular, there is a very specific intention with which one is coming together as white people, white educators to talk about anti-racism, to talk about one's white identity and what that means to understand one's whiteness in the context of a white supremacist society and to be trying to be anti-racist within in that culture. 
So, um, however, when we decided to intentionally brand that space as a white accountability space, partly it was observing some of the trends and, and, and renaming that others were doing around this space. So I'll, some of it is about recognition. So the kinds of naming that people might recognize and feel comfortable with, because ultimately the goal is to bring people in the door to get people engaging in those conversations. And if the name was going to be a barrier to that, then we wanted to make sure that that was not the thing that was stopping someone from joining a white affinity space or a white accountability group or a white anti-racist accountability group. So you have all of these different permutations, but ultimately it's the work that's happening in that group that's important and you need people coming in the door to have those conversations. So yeah, it was an intentional branding to get people to hopefully feel more comfortable joining those conversations. But I think for all of us, having a discussion around the anxiety that white people have about talking about race, about talking about being anti-racist and what does that even mean as a white person? Those are the those are the real conversations we want to have rather than, you know, what's the right name in some ways. And I, I think actually it's really wise. I've participated in white affinity groups before that are actually accountability groups. Like that's what was going on inside of those conversations. But I think that as a white person, there's so many affinity groups that I'm just by default part of. Like most of my childhood was a white affinity group. Most of my education was a white affinity group. And there, yet there was no white accountability in those spaces. So I think that it's really wise how you're branding that and how you're labeling it as something different than just white people coming together to talk about their privilege and how interesting that is. It's different. You're doing something intentional. It's, I'm curious about the two affinity groups or groups that you have, the groups that I've been part of, the strength of those groups were when the groups came together and talked with each other. So there's two main times that I can think of. One was when I was at the Klingenstein Center and we had different self created affinity groups. So they kind of grew organically from the participants' desires. And then they came together and shared hey, by the way, when people say this or when people do this, this is how it impacts us. And it, it was that was, I think, the really powerful part. In your iterations of your design, do you have that idea of people being able to share cross groups with each other? Yes and no. Um, I'll start off by saying that an affinity group isn't really for learning about others. It's about learning about yourself. And so because affinity groups are about learning primarily about yourself, you don't really need to have a mixed group with uh, Black, Indigenous people of color and white people together in that space. And our biggest concern or our biggest reason by, for separating those two groups out is that we would not want any harm to come from those groups. And it's something that we've considered maybe doing down the road that if you participate in one of the white or BIPOC affinity spaces, you may eventually graduate onto some sort of a mixed space once we know that no harm would be done in that group for um, Black, Indigenous people of color. But our primary goal at this point is just to create a space for people to learn about themselves and about their own identities. And the thing is, for white people, they don't need people of color to learn about the color, the, the experience of people of color. There are so many podcasts and books and movies and articles out there that document and share stories about those experiences that we don't need people in the room together to share those experiences. Because really, the, as Perna mentioned in, in the opening, 
there's a burden that comes for people of color when they're expected to explain over and over and over to white people what their experience is. And most Black, Indigenous people of color, especially in education in Canada, are in white spaces all the time. Like they, they don't need to learn about white folks and white culture. They know it inside and out. <laughs> it's white people who need to learn about white people and white culture and what that means and the privileges that come with that. So the answer again is yes and no. For now, we're just sticking to the affinity spaces because we want to provide for white people a space of learning and accountability. For Black Indigenous people of color, we want to provide a space that allows for solidarity and joy and celebrating their identities while also holding each other to account. Um, but at some point down the road, if we think people have like need those secondary conversations, we might consider it, but we don't feel that we're there yet. Yeah, that's really wise. And I, I'm reflecting even in hearing you respond that the people who are joining together through talking together for change, they may be at various different organizations. And so I think the joining together is a really different thing if everyone is in the same school community or if everyone's in the same workplace. It's like, hey, the LGBTQ affinity group would like to let you know how to stop microaggressing this collection of humans. Um, whereas if people are all in different spaces, that, that necessarily coming together and sharing doesn't need to happen in the same way. Can I add to that, that relationships are, part, are so important in this work, right? And so if there isn't enough time and space to develop those relationships, and then there's a need to share someone's experiences that that might be really traumatic or really difficult to share and you haven't established those norms in that relationship then it then it is actually going to do harm mm -hmm. right whereas as you've said you know if you're in an organization together and relationship and trust and community has been established then there is more opportunity to do that sharing and and know that you're holding space together and holding each other account in a way that's going to move you together in that organization. So I think that's an, an added element to it. Yeah, that's really helpful. Can I, can I put one more thing? <laughs> I think the other issue as well is that in creating Talking Together for Change, we also didn't want to think that we were doing everything that needs to be done in terms of the work, in terms of you know EDIJ in Canadian education or Canada more broadly. It was the fact that there is a place for training and workshops, and there is a place for cross dialogue and mixed group dialogue, and there is a place also for affinity conversations. And so, what we were seeing was sort of a gap. There was a there was a lot of training, and there were a lot of workshops happening, and a lot of people are sort of some people are comfortable or want that, you know, they, they feel they want, um, and particularly white people feel they want that intergroup dialogue, but there wasn't a lot of space that we were seeing for those affinity conversations uniquely. So that's where we saw, okay, hey, this is a gap and we wanted to fill that gap. So we're totally, we understand the different need in different places and times and for people of those different kinds of engagements, but, um, we wanted to speak to what, what, what did we not see happening enough that we thought had real value? That's so wise. It's really just understanding what you are and what you're not. And this is exactly what you are. I think that that is a really great way to approach that. 
I, I hope that you have several different affinity group offerings in the next couple of years. And as things grow, you have more possibilities for people because intersectionality is real. And that, you know, somebody who has one identity isn't necessarily going to fit into those two broad categories. You know, you have the white accountability space and you have a BIPOC affinity group. And BIPOC is obviously a very broad term that encompasses a lot of different ways of experiencing the world. Two questions, is it too broad, BIPOC? And how in your experience can affinity groups account for intersectionality? Maybe I'll start us off by saying is the BIPOC term too broad? Sure, it is absolutely broad, right? I mean, we know that the experiences of black educators, indigenous educators, people of color educators are not all the same but just as the experiences of all white educators are not the same, right? I mean, at the, we are all individual and have our unique experiences, but I can share that when I attended uh, an affinity space for Asian educators, I still there was a lot of value in that experience, right? Sure, there was an added value to the South Asian educator affinity group that I then was able to attend, but it wasn't that I didn't get a lot of connection, affirmation, nurture, validation, and then also accountability in that Asian affinity space. So it's about trying to create something for people as a starting point. And then in really thinking about this as a Canadian context, there's also unique experience for BIPOC educators who are Canadian, who are working in Canadian institutions. That is a unique identity that we're trying to really get people to think about what is our what is our responsibility what is our sense of identity within the context of being educators in Canada right so that is a shared identity that can we can really talk about and to be very honest with you as our facilitation team grows as people's participation in the affinity group grows our hope is to actually start to create more affinity spaces based on race but also based on other identities and for the time being, based on what we're capable of doing and knowing who we are um, and not to, trying to stretch ourselves too thin, we're saying within the BIPOC affinity space, we're going to create breakout groups and spaces based on people's racial identity so that they can still have those shared experiences and talk from the eye perspective in those breakout groups. Yeah, that's awesome. I think you have to start small, like you have to start with what is reasonable now. And I'm very excited in a few years to see all the many different iterations of affinity groups. And I, I know that people listening here want to try to get affinity groups started in their own schools, because I think it's one thing as an adult who wants to push themselves further to sign up for professional learning with you but then schools may wanna do this for their students. I think this is a really natural step for schools to try to think about this. So do you have any suggestions for educators or admin who want to try to get affinity groups off the ground for children? Cause I think it's a, or even, you know, all their staff. I think it's a very different thing when perhaps people don't have the choice. It's like, we're gonna have this as something that's just part of our learning curriculum. Our, our biggest advice is do it, like, just do it. <laughs> but with the caveat, yeah, but with the caveat that you need to do it properly, um, you need to make sure that whether they, you use student facilitators or faculty facilitators, that they're properly trained, that they have been part of affinity spaces in the, 
excuse me, in the past to know what it is they're getting into, because you need to be really careful about how to create that space, how to create a brave space for people to, to come together. And it's important that they are offered all three of us, Aperna's run many affinity groups for students. Risa and I have co-facilitated affinity groups for LGBTQ students. And it's one of those, like, if you build it, they will come type of things. Like you don't, I think if it's provided by by a school, students are keen, students are excited. And the biggest thing we've seen is from admin is the hesitation about what to do with the white students, because often you'll, you'll inevitably get one student who says, well, why isn't there a white affinity group for me? I want to talk about my whiteness. And people really shy away from that when the answer should be, yes, we should be having an affinity space for you too. Let's do that. But you need to make sure that you have educators who are working from an anti-racist context, facilitating those conversations and ensuring that those conversations between white students are just as productive as any other affinity space for a minority group within the school environment. And it's a, it's a missed opportunity if, if schools don't also provide white affinity spaces because white students also need to talk about their identities. They also need to understand systemic racism and how they are a piece within that, within that context and how they, they, they too have a role to play in dismantling racism. And I've, I've never seen an affinity space that hasn't worked. And I'm a, I'm a seed, I'm facility, I'm trained to be a seed facilitator. And in seed, they say the data is in the room and really you only ever need to look within yourself and listen to the other people who are sharing that space with you to understand what is going on in the larger society and social context that any, any person can share stories and you can listen and understand what their experiences are within our society. And you don't need to go beyond that. If you're listening with your heart to everybody else. And so as long as the facilitation is tuned in to who is in the room and being both supportive and critical of the conversations that are happening, I think affinity spaces can be brilliant for both educators and for students. That's actually true that you've never been part of an affinity group that's never gone sideways. I find that just so comforting and amazing. I haven't. And even I've, I've been in a white affinity space with 1200 people in it um, and a team of, I think there were probably a team of 10 or 12 facilitators, but even with 1500 people. And at that point, you never know what's going on in those small, small groups who are having their, their breakout group conversations. And even then I've never not, I should knock wood. I need, I'm knocking wood. <laughs> <laughs> it's never gone sideways. Perna and Risa, have you, like, have you had a different experience? I mean, I will say that have I been challenged in affinity spaces? Mm -hmm. Has there been discomfort? Have I walked away feeling like, oh, I, I need to think about that for sure. Mm -hmm. I don't, con I don't consider that sideways. I consider that the absolute like heart and need for this work is to feel discomfort and challenged mm -hmm. and be, and, and really think about like, oh, I need to unpack that. I need to journal or talk to someone about what just happened and then, and then come back to that. So yeah, I would say, Lindsay, I haven't, I also haven't had that experience, but I, I definitely can think about times where it's like, okay, something <laughs> just doesn't quite feel quite right. I totally agree. 
I, I can I say that, um, oh, I have a couple of things to say. Yes, I have been in white affinity spaces where some of the conversations I've had with other educators have made me think like, whoa, th- th- there's some challenging like ideas and, and, and understandings of, you know, race and racism in our schools happening here. And for me, that's caused me more reflection where I, like, that's actually instructive in that I leave thinking, oh my goodness, some other people are thinking about these things in this way and what does that mean? So it's been very eye-opening. And for those people, I can't speak to their experience, but they're at a different point on their journey. And so they will be learning and taking away different questions and ideas from that same conversation, whether it's from something maybe I've contributed or someone else has contributed. And so that's the real value of that. But what I would say is that, and Celeste, I think this goes back to what you were saying about intersectionality. You do need to think about, okay, well, what is the what is the identity that is bringing people together for this particular affinity conversation? What's the context and the goal for that conversation? So, is the context, you know, um, anti-racism and you know thinking about that together in an affinity space? Is the context, you know, um, Islamophobia? Is the context, you know, um, heteronormativity at our schools and talking about that, you know? And so, I think for me. I wouldn't say that the affinity group failed, but I know from the affinity space that Lindsay and I uh, facilitated for LGBTQ2S plus students, I think part of, uh, you also want straight students and straight faculty to be doing that parallel work because depending on where you're coming at this conversation from, it's so productive to get all of those students and faculty who identify as queer, you know, in a space together talking about their experiences within the institution and, and, and thinking about, you know, their identities and, and talking through the challenges and celebrating those identities together. But you also don't want to feel like you're the only ones doing work within that school context to create and you can't be the only ones within that school so really again speaking back to where I would think that there could be failures would not be bringing more people into those conversations in their own groups to talk about you know how do we con how do we combat homophobia how do we combat racism as straight people as white people you know and and engaging more people I think that to me would be the only failure where there can feel a sense that as the marginalized group within an institution that you're the only ones having this conversation that you're the only ones spending time and taking up space to talk about these things you want to feel like other people are engaging in those conversations as well it's coming up for me is the idea of a safe space versus a brave space and I remember one of the affinity groups I was part of really leaned into that idea of like you're going to be uncomfortable like that is the point like kind of what Aparna was saying that this is the work you can't be comfortable in this work especially as white people and that but can you be brave? Can you show up? And even just the idea of going back and reflecting on what somebody has said and thinking, hey, what what is that bringing up for me? That's, I think, where the real learning happens. I'm curious even just hearing this idea of how students get involved in this. And one of the barriers, I think, in many schools is that the numbers for an affinity group within schools sometimes don't exist. Like sometimes there's three black students in a class or in a grade or in a school and to have just those three people in an affinity group can sometimes reinforce those challenges and the lack of support sometimes for those children 
Have you ever thought, or is this like a future plan to have student-led affinity groups with Talking Together for Change? I've given you the idea right now. I'm looking at your faces. I'm like, well, no. <laughs> no well, actually, uh, sorry, I was, I didn't want to speak to it, but Lindsay and Aparna just recently did facilitation for student leaders of affinity groups. Now, it wasn't mm. through talking together for change, but we were providing that facilitation to students for a conference so that they could lead affinity spaces. And again, I think it's very important for that to be an intentional training and discussion. You can't just send students together and say, hey, here, everyone have a call. Like that is a place where I think those conversations could go very sideways. As Lindsay and Aparna have said already, you need to have people who are conducting and planning and facilitating those conversations in a way so that it can be both a safe and brave space so that there is a clear understanding of how are, what are we trying to achieve here and how are we going to hopefully arrive at that place together. Yeah, and so yes, I, I think, I don't know, Lindsay and Aparna, do you want to speak more to the, the student aspect? I mean, I'd like to speak to the Celeste, the part where you're saying, you know, three black students and, you know, that kind of idea where we know that exists, right? We know in institutions there are um, students of, you know, very small numbers. I still think it's really valuable for them to connect, mm. Uh, mm. for them to share space, for them to have those interactions. Uh, I'm going to share a little story here that, you know, last year in June, when uh, the world was on fire, I feel like, right? And the students at my school were talking, the Black students at my school were talking about the fact that there was a relief that they could meet and talk with one another without anyone asking them why they were in a room together. The fact that in a school, they don't feel that they can get together and just have a conversation without people wondering why, Whereas that would never happen for a group of white students, right? And so whether it's two, three, five, six, a hundred, it doesn't matter what the number is, those students still need that space to be able to have connection and community and affirmation and, and not be challenged as to why they're meeting, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and so I think that that is so valuable. And, and when it's facilitated carefully and thoughtfully, then it goes beyond just celebration of identity and affirmation, but it also is about empowerment. It's about people being able to use their voice to advocate for what they need, not just in that affinity space, but to practice that and be able to do that outside of that affinity space, hmm. right? Hmm. Because if, if we don't give students the practice to do those conversations, then how will they ever advocate for themselves outside of that? And, you know, I speak for myself, I never had enough practice of that. It is really hard right now for me to advocate for myself as a person of color in a predominantly white institution because I didn't practice it enough. So I want to hold that space for students to be able to do that. And I'd like to add that that practice is important for educators as well. Students want to be talking about current events. Students want to understand the world around them and educators need to have practiced having those conversations with other educators before they launch into having those conversations with students. They need to be comfortable using the language. They need to be comfortable with their own identities before they try having those conversations in the classroom. And affinity spaces can help educators build that confidence to have conversations with students. That's I so wanna, powerful. 
can I speak to another level of this that is oftentimes the, the sort of elephant in the room when we're thinking about institutions and doing this work within a school? We also have to think about our hiring practices, you know, and so in, in terms of one, I know that when coming down to running affinity spaces, Sometimes um, there's anxiety at the administrative level in how do you how do you narrate that and how do you talk about the value of those spaces to other people in the community, parents, guardians, right? When they question, why are you having these discussions? You know, so you need a strong administration who understands, okay, what is the value and how are these functioning and why are we doing this in our school? But on top of that, the reality is that when we are in institutions that are largely white in many Canadian educational contexts, the labor of this work oftentimes falls to people of color in particular in supporting students of color in having these conversations in one, and that's what we talk about in terms of identity tax. And it, it happens in terms of all types of people who are marginalized within a larger system. One, not all educators of color may be comfortable leading those conversations or want to lead those conversations. It might not be right for them in that space where they are within their institution, but also are we hiring white educators also who are ready to take leadership in these areas, right? And not maybe in leading a, uh, an affinity space for BIPOC students, but also leading affinity spaces for white students, right? So we need to think about what kind of capacity are we developing that's already there? And how are we, what are we expecting from all of our educators in terms of their comfort and ability and willingness to be trained if they're not already to kind of do this important work so that it's not always falling to the same people because Mm. it takes a lot out of you right it's these are hard conversations they, they're amazing and they're so valuable but they can't always fall to the same people that brings up so many questions for me too I want like I, I love the idea that school leaders could be participating in these groups through talking together for change and how important and powerful and transformative that can be and then I also was wondering like the dynamics of an affinity group where there's power imbalances within the group. You know, have you ever been part of or helped facilitate a, like I'm imagining like a white accountability space where there are people at different parts of a school power structure and working in, I wanna say in a circle community together. Like how does that work when there's people within an affinity that have different influences of power over each other? So that everyone's like, yeah. We're all nodding. <laughs> we have thought we have thought a lot about this. We and have. and it, it, it's a reality. Our hope with talking together for change actually kind of gets a little bit out of that in the hope that you're not necessarily bringing a group together of people who are all working together at the same institution. So in that sense, there's a great freedom where you could have people who are functioning in an administration role within a school, but not necessarily in the same school as, you know, people who are educators in that school. And so that creates some really interesting conversations between people who have different sort of power invested in the roles they play as educators, as white educators, as BIPOC educators, you know, that, that's very interesting. I think within a school, we have talked a lot amongst ourselves that there can be value in breaking those groups apart because of this sense of, and this goes back to the whole affinity. When we're bringing together people in affinity spaces and talking together for change, 
they are affinity spaces that are specifically for educators, right? Or educational professionals. So it's not just BIPOC people coming together in a group or white people coming together in an affinity group, but they are people who work within an educational system. Um, if you're in an individual school, part of a greater layer of affinity when you think about intersectionality in terms of power might be your role within that school, right? Are you in an administration role? Are you at a certain grade level where the conversations you want to be having are different in terms of talking about how race and discourses of race play out in a classroom in a curriculum you know so there's all sorts of interesting configurations that you can do that bring together sort of sub elements of affinity within a larger kind of affinity space people <laughs> need to think about their position within like their positional power within these affinity spaces, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is important. That is another layer of your identity that you're bringing into that space. And, you know, I think one of the things, Celeste, that's so important in affinity spaces is to create norms and agreements mm -hmm. that everyone is going to follow. And that's what the facilitator is really establishing with the group. And maybe those are co-created or maybe those are outlined and then everyone has an agreement at talking together for change we have created those agreements and we are we put those out there to the participants that you need to agree to these and one of those things is that your position isn't part of this conversation right now in the sense that you're not holding power over others that are in that group but you need to examine your your privilege and your power and your posi positionality within the conversation because that impacts the work that you can do both within yourself, but also outwardly, right? So mm -hmm. I, I, I think it is tricky. I have been in situations where people are, and, and these are in mixed affinity groups, right? Where someone is in a position of authority and who isn't actually listening and that can create a lot of harm. So it, it's about the facilitator then saying, you know, we're gonna need to take a pause here and come back to our norms. What are our norms and how are we going to agree to be part of this conversation right now? And, and if you think about like, and this goes back to Lindsay talking about her seed training as well, what the data is in the room. And this is where affinity, this is where, I'm so excited. This is where affinity <laughs> conversations are so amazing because Unlike going to training or a workshop where you're listening to someone else, you know, delivering you content, you're like, oh, yes, that's great. You know, in an affinity space, this is where you get to think about how do these concepts apply to me in the roles I play and the person I am, both professionally and personally. And so when you think about a prompt that you might encounter in a white affinity space, that might be something like, or it could be in a BIPOC affinity space as well. Was there a time, can you speak to a time or reflect on a time when you were called on to stand and be in solidarity with someone else and you, you weren't, right? That you didn't, you didn't function in that way. Think about answering that question as a, a teacher and where that might be, maybe with a student in the classroom, it might be with another teacher that you're working with in your department or in your school, or is it as an administrator where you've been asked to consider policy development or students have come to you about something that has a larger policy issue and maybe you didn't do or you didn't listen well to the group and what they needed, right? Like you can think about all of the different kinds of reflections that can come based on which perspective are you coming at this reflective prompt based on your lived experience, you know, in that group. There's such richness there. 
Would you say that the ultimate goal with affinity groups is that they don't need to exist eventually? <laughs> Puts you out of business, which is not so no. ideal, but you know, is the ultimate idea that people are able to have these kinds of conversations organically and in ways that are productive and healthy? Like, is it eventually that we don't need these? No, I don't think so. I think we're always going to need these. Yeah, because tell identity, me more. Identity development and exploration is a lifelong journey. Mm. I'm never, that's never ending, right? How I got married two years ago, my identity changed. Mm. Immediately my identity changed, right? It's constantly evolving based on who we are, what our experiences are, how we interact with the world around us. I think the goal for affinity groups is to be able to have the conversations, to be able to reflect. Yeah. I, th I think from a, like, a hopeful, idealistic perspective, yes, of course. If we lived in a society that was completely just, where there was no discrimination, where there was no oppression, then yes, of course. Like, and we lived in a place where we were all comfortable having these discussions and, you know, Yes, it would be great. But I think we're a long way off. You know, I think the big danger, um, especially as we see the lead up to last year, but even, you know, looking back as far as, you know, the election of, uh, you know, we're so defined by American politics of, of Barack Obama as president, that there was all this celebratory sense that we're in this post-racist society, right? Or you think about the um, achievement of sort of marriage equity laws with the LGBTQ community, you know, are we in this post-homophobic society? Well, of course, none of us would, we know that this is not the case. Right. So until we're in a society where we're we're not suffering with issues of ableism, of transphobia, of, you know, heteronormativity, uh, like all of, uh, you know, racism, whatever it is, then there's going to be space for these conversations there. There has to be. Um, and there and it's great. They should be happening. But yes, ultimately, you know, if we're looking towards down the road when none of these things are at play in our societies and our schools anymore, then yeah, I think we could then, but I, I think we'll be in business for a long time until that happens, unfortunately. But. And I would also add that that sense of connection you get with people in an affinity space, especially in a, a group for a marginalized group of people, it's so powerful. Like that sense of community and knowing knowing those people, it just, it just is so filling and it feels so good in your heart that I think about queer spaces I've been in and yeah, I get a lot of fulfillment in many other areas of my life and have great friends who aren't queer. And, but there's something about those queer friendships that, that are a little bit different. And I think affinity space builds that. And so even if affinity spaces were no longer working towards a social justice goal and they were just about building people up that's that's a different that's a different purpose but it's still a really valid purpose and i think there's room for any of that and as aparna said like we're exploring our identities our entire lives and they shift and change so much as we age and as different bits of our lives change that i think i think there's such lovely wonderful spaces on so many levels that I would kind of hate to see them disappear. <laughs> yeah, I'm with Aparna and just hearing how our identities evolve, like thinking even about the identities that need affinity groups now that we weren't necessarily thinking about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, those identities existed, but perhaps we were not aware of how essential these conversations were. I hope that as more identities come to the surface and as we become more aware of different aspects of our own identities, 
affinity groups can evolve and change to support that. Because yeah, Lindsay, I'm right with you too. I think that having those conversations, really powerful facilitated conversations are life-changing. In other words, I don't want, ever want to see you go out of business. I think you'll just evolve <laughs> and grow as the culture shifts. Yes. Well, when, when you think about it, just going back to one other aspect of where we wanted to get started with talking together for change was also thinking about these ideas within the Canadian context. And I brought up how much we are influenced by a lot of what is happening in the United States as well as globally, you know even within the Canadian context, thinking about ourselves in a colonial context as educators, where there is such a, uh, you know, a fraught history and present of, you know, assimilationist policy through education, you know, there are spaces, there are opportunities when you talk about, you know, breaking down affinity, but for all educators who do not identify as Indigenous to come together and talk about, you know, how are we functioning to decolonize our education system? Um, and how does that conversation take place between people and their different lived status within Canada? You know, have you been here for a long time? Are you a recent immigrant to Canada? And how do you connect to decolonization within the education system? You know, so as you can see, you know, in the Canadian context, these are going to continue to be really relevant conversations in how we consider reconciliation and moving forward in the country that we exist in, right? Before we jump into the ticket out the door, which has nothing to do with affinity groups, but everything to do with you and silliness, uh, how can educators find out more about Talking Together for Change? How can people sign up for your next latest and greatest offerings? Well, we're all over social media, um, so Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, but our, our website is www.talkingtogetherforchange.com, um, so, you know, you can register there, uh, you can send us an email, um, Celeste, maybe we can put that on your blog post, and, 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 and we encourage you to ask us questions, um, we encourage you to really think about how to like engage in these conversations so that you can do the work for yourself and for your students and your colleagues and, and those that are around you. Um, so yeah, uh, registration is open and we're excited to meet new uh, friends and build our community of educational professionals doing the work. That's awesome. Okay, ticket out the door. This is how we'll work. We'll go alphabetical. So we'll start with Aparna, Lindsay, Risa for each of the questions. So you'll just go, go, go. First thing that comes to mind. I know it's great. It's so much fun. First thing that comes to your mind. So don't overthink it too much. Are we ready? We're yes. ready. Okay. Something <laughs> you're grateful for right now. Being able to do this work with two amazing friends and colleagues. That spring is coming. Uh, electricity because the hydro is out in my house right now. So I am grateful for the, the wonderful benefits of electricity. <laughs> what is the best gift you ever received as an educator? Oh, a snow globe um, in, after my first year of teaching with the words, I believe. I was teaching a grade 12 course called Race, Gender, Human Rights when I was pregnant with my daughter and my students at the end of the course, when I was going off on mat leave, found the most gender neutral toy they could because they thought that would do my heart good <laughs> that not have like gender stereotypes into the, in this toy. And it was like a, a deer, like a really cute deer stuffy that they gave me. <laughs> oh. 
Um, I think for me, the greatest gift was having the latitude in a classroom and in, in an educational institution to try new things, to be able to experiment with. That was such a gift um, to be able to have the freedom to play and, and improve my own teaching methods uh, because I had the freedom to do so and the support. That was a, that was a great gift. Oh, love your non-materialistic answer. <laughs> like every answer I've ever thought of, I'm like, that's the better one. <laughs> well done. Uh, what's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Cuddle my husband and think about what I'm grateful for. I put on my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I turn on the espresso machine for my wife and myself as she gets ready to leave for work really early in the morning. It's really lovely. What's the last thing you do before you go to bed? also cuddle my husband and we do three gratefuls every night so So you know we start with gratefuls and we end with gratefuls I let the dog out to pee (laughs) 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 everybody else's are so deep and (laughs) yeah I uh, we always I we always say I love you um or something like that right right before we fall asleep you know there's that, that moment and then we say it again it's nice Unless I fall asleep really quickly, which I'm prone to do. So (laughs) usually I get it in there. It's a perfect way to end it. Uh, Pie or cake? Cake. Oh, oh, cake. I think pie. pie. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Most definitely pie. Chocolate cake. (laughs) And now let's get more specific. We're like, (laughs) okay, beach or mountains? Oh. Well, Vancouver has beach and mountains, so both. Hmm. I was going to say the same. What about a mountain lake? <laughs> uh, definitely beach. I don't like how mountains limit my perspective of seeing. I, mm. I, small hills I'm good with, but, uh, but always water. Water will always be first. Spring or fall? Oh, <sighs> spring, I guess. But, oh, I love fall. I Both. Spring for me. Fall. Yeah. What would be your last meal on earth? My mom's home cooked Indian food. Oh, I don't, I don't know. (laughs) There's too many. I can't, Risa, you go and maybe I'll come up with something before. I know 100%. I was just talking about this the other day. Fesenjun. It's an Iranian dish that's made with pomegranate juice and crushed walnuts. Oh, I'm salivating just thinking of it. Fesenjun. That's the last meal on earth so good i i still don't know i lived (laughs) when when you said iranian it made me think i lived in norway for many years and there's so many foods from norway that i really dearly miss so it might just be to taste some of those one last Mm. time if yeah Mm -hmm. but i can't think of anything particular okay the final question today is what is the future of learning rich deep meaningful conversations where people can be authentically themselves where teachers are learning alongside students that we're not like experts in a field, but we're, we're learning together in conversation and discussion and critical, deep, rich thinking and questioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, along the same lines that students are leading and that teachers are really listening because I have to say over and over, I am so inspired every time I'm in the classroom. And that no matter what school I've been in, no matter what grade level, I am in awe of of students. Like they, they're ahead of us in so many ways. And if we listen to them and 
don't shut down their questions. I think there's so much power in, in learning and learning as Aparna said, learning alongside them. I think for me, passion is like, is the key to having a future in learning, whether for students or for educators, you have to be passionate about what you're doing in the classroom, passionate about the relationships you're creating with each other, passionate about creating school communities that work for everyone. So to me, you know, passion, passion is the future of learning. You are all amazing educators and human beings. I am so honored to get to have you for an hour to talk to you. Thank you for the impact that you're making in our communities. And I am so excited to keep following the work that you're doing. Thank you, Celeste, for Thanks creating so this space and this opportunity to have a conversation. How wonderful. Mm. We don't usually get to see each other on a Sunday morning. It's nice to be able to see my my friends. And so thanks for creating this. Mm. And Celeste, it's an honor to meet you. And mm. uh, thank you for creating opportunities for these conversations. If you are ready to take the next step, you can find out more about this work by going to talkingtogetherthenumber4change.com. That's talkingtogetherforchange.com. There are also resources and links to things that we mentioned in this show in the show notes on the blog. Thanks for listening to this episode and including this learning in your life. To pay it forward, you can do three simple things. Share a quick rating review on Apple Podcasts. Follow me on the socials to stay on top of the latest episodes. I'm at teaching underscore tomorrow on Instagram and I'm at teach underscore tomorrow on Twitter. And of course, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep having those brave conversations. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.